This is the Reflection Podcast, and I'm Ed Blonsky. This is a special episode, part one of an episode called Martin Luther, Yesterday and Today. Stay tuned after this episode, and I'll tell you a little bit more about St. Matthew Lutheran Church, where this podcast originates. But for now, let's see who's in the pastor's office with me today to talk about Martin Luther. In the pastor's office with me today is Dr. Gerhard Bode from Concordia Seminary in St. Louis. Thanks for joining me, Dr. Bode. Zabolanski, it's great to be with you. Thank you for inviting me to be with you. Today we're going to talk about Martin Luther and the Reformation. This is a special episode of the Reflection Podcast as we look at uh, the the life, uh, briefly at least, of the Reformer and uh, Martin Luther, uh, who lived in the 1500s, not the namesake of Martin Luther from the 1960s. I know my confirmation class always gets gets confused when I start talking about Martin Luther and Martin Luther King Jr. So, uh, but we'll talk, I want to talk about a little bit about Martin Luther, but we're going to get to that. But first I wanted to um, maybe have uh, you, Dr. Bodie, give us a little bit of background and, and introduction to yourself. Sure, sure. My, uh, my background is really uh from, I'm from Minnesota originally. My father was a pastor. He's, he's still a pastor. He's retired now. So I grew up in a, in a Lutheran parsonage in, in uh, southern Minnesota, just outside of Minneapolis. And I went to Lutheran schools there, uh, Lutheran elementary school and high school, and then went to University of Minnesota and had a, a wonderful childhood growing up. It was, it was great to, be, uh, to, to grow up close to a church and to be part of the life of a congregation every day. In fact, the, the house that I grew up in, the parsonage that I grew up in, was actually connected to the church by a tunnel underneath the ground. Went from our, our basement into the church basement, which is nice in, in the Minnesota winters, not to have to go outside <laughs> to go to church. But it was a great blessing to me to, to grow up in a, in a, a wonderful congregation with, with kind, loving people who really cared about the church. And, and and we're very good to our family. That really encouraged me to to want to go into the ministry myself. And so when I was done with college, I I came to Concordia Seminary here in St. Louis with the goal of becoming a pastor. And so I did my studies here. And I think we were talking earlier. You and I were at the seminary at the same time. We're not sure if we had classes together, but we were here at the same time. And uh, and but after after seminary, I continued to do some graduate work. Lewis at Salem Lutheran Church in Afton, and I was a pastor for uh, several years, even while I was still doing graduate work here. And then, and then finally, I, I accepted a call to teach here in the history department at Concordia Seminary, and I've been doing that since since 2005. I, I teach mostly in the area of Reformation history, uh, so I'll teach classes in, in the Lutheran Reformation. Uh, the Roman Catholic Reformation, the the Reformed Reformation, those kinds of classes, but also uh, classes in modern history and uh, uh, even Lutheranism in America. So that's the kind of kind of work that I do here at the seminary. I'm the seminary archivist also, so I I have to keep track of the history of this place, which is very long history. It goes back all the way to 1839. So there's a lot a lot going on in our history here. So we have have a lot of fun with all of that, but. That's a little bit about my about my background. Um, I haven't lived in Minnesota for a long time. It's a place that I miss, but I guess I've become used to St. Louis, and I, my, my family and I love it here now. Well, it certainly sounds like I've got the right man in the seat to talk about the Reformation and Luther. What what drew you to this particular part of the church's history, uh, Reformation history, and, and Luther? Well, I, I think there were a couple of things. First, I would say that it was, uh, I, I pretty, I really found that I, that I deeply loved the gospel and the story of the gospel. I mean, to me, there's nothing better than, than hearing and learning about what God has done for us in Christ and how God has, has brought salvation to sinful human beings through, through Christ, his, his person and his work on our behalf. And so that, I really, I really got into that, to the church's teaching in this area. I had really good teachers here at the seminary, as, as I'm sure you did. 
And I kind of fell in love with that, with that biblical story of, of uh, God's work in the world. It's, it's not a, a past tense history, but it's something that God continues to do today. He continues to work his salvation through his word, through his Holy Spirit today. And I, I just really kind of fell in love with that. And then I, I began to become more and more interested in, in the history of that, especially with, with Martin Luther and the Reformation and how Luther uh, kind of recovered that message for the church of his day and really for, for our day, too. We're the, we are the heirs of, of that teaching, that Reformation message that Luther proclaimed and taught. We still continue to do that, and we still preach and teach that today. And so I think it was, it was, uh, I, I was been kind of interested in history, but I became very interested in the, in the Reformation history and really in the, the life and work of Martin Luther. Uh, I, I've always, I've always loved biographies. I love to read biographies for fun, but, but Luther's biography is just amazing. It's just a fascinating story. He was an amazing person, a very gifted uh, not always easy to understand or a, kind of a, a complicated figure, uh, but it was something that he was a person that I became very, very interested in and read a lot about. And just that interest continues to this day. I really enjoy it. Thanks for that. Um, I, I agree. Uh, and, I'm, and at the end of this, we're going to talk a little bit about some of those biographies of Luther that you might recommend. So keep that in the back of your mind uh, as we go through this. Um, well, let's let's dive into uh, Luther and the man, and maybe give us a little bit of background of of where he fits in history, um, end of the 15th century, beginning of the 16th century in Western Europe, and then a little bit of background into Luther's life. Sure. Well, at, Luther lives at a time that we we might say that he's a medieval man in some respects. He's born in the late medieval period. He's born in 1483. But it's a time of a lot of change in in European society. Uh, they're coming out of the of the long period of the of the Middle Ages, where which which are not the Dark Ages, by the way. Often the Middle Ages gets a bad rap, as if nothing happened there. Sometimes it's referred to as the you know the thousand years without a bath, but that's really not true. There's a lot of very very important things that are going on in the Middle Ages, and uh, changes in society, changes in theology. Just one example of that is is uh, is Renaissance humanism, which really begins in the in the in the early 14th century in Italy, where there's a revival of interest in in classical antiquity and classical learning, uh, and you have a, a great recovery of old manuscripts, and there's also a revival of interest in education and learning, uh, learning languages. Uh, uh, it's a literary movement. And so there's kind of a call by the late Middle Ages, among some at least, to, to look back to the original sources of things. So the idea is if you want to find what's, what's true in the world, if you want to find what's right and good, go back to the beginnings of things. Go back ad fontes, as the humanists would say. Go back to the founts, to the original sources of things. And there are people long before Martin Luther who are doing that, some are going back to the works of classical antiquity. They're going back to the writings of people like Cicero and Caesar and Virgil, all these ancient writers. Uh, or they may be going back to ancient architecture or ancient art or something like that. Well, but there are other, other Renaissance humanists. By the way, these are Christians who are, are trying to make improvements in their own world, their own society. Many of them start to go back to the scriptures. Oh, what's right and good and true about about God, about God's plan for the world. Go back to the Bible for that. Now that idea had always been around. There are, are plenty of theologians in the Middle Ages that are commenting on the scriptures and writing about them. But there's certainly a revival of interest that's going on uh, when, when Luther is, is still a young man. And he picks up on, on some of those ideas. So there's a, there's a lot of changes, uh, a great desire for for a certainty, a certainty of the knowledge of God and his word, but also certainty for salvation. And this is also in the background. It's a common theme among many of these, uh, these uh, people in the late medi medieval period, a, a desire to know for certain that, that a person is saved. And uh, Martin Luther certainly will share that concern as well. 
So I mentioned Luther is a late medieval person, but it's a it's a it's a world that's changing dramatically during that time, and a lot of innovation, a lot of new ideas are coming in, and Luther will pick up on a lot of those kinds of those kinds of things. So his he is um, Luther, of course, is from Germany. He's from the eastern part of Germany today, uh, from Saxony, and uh, he's a he's a late medieval man. He's also born a peasant. He is of the peasant class. This is something that he refers to a number of times during his life. We're called regarded himself as a, it, that doesn't bother him. He's not afraid to tell people that. It's not there's nothing shameful about that. But that's he recognizes his status in society. Uh, and by the way, he he uh, the the woman that he will marry, Katerina von Bora, is a, a woman of the noble class. She's a noble woman coming from a noble family. So there's a, that's kind of an interesting little thing. You have a peasant Luther marrying a, a noble woman. But again, things are changing in society at that time. And although Luther's fe, uh, uh, family is of the, the peasant class, uh, the family is also upwardly mobile. So there are times when his family is actually doing pretty well financially. His, Luther's father was in the, in the mining business. He started out as a copper miner and then was involved in and smelting operations and things like that, and there was a, a good amount of money to be made in that in that field. And so uh, Luther's father does do pretty well, and he's a, he is able to uh, afford very good schools for Luther. So Luther gets an excellent education as a young man, uh, better than most people of his day. So he goes off uh, when he's eighteen years old. He, he goes off to the university, at University of Erfurt to study there, and uh, he's a very good student, uh, kind of sails through his bachelor's and master's degrees, and then begins to study the law. Now, of course, this is what, what Luther's father wanted him to do. Luther's father wanted him to be a lawyer. Uh, it it's, was a good profession. It's a good profession today. It was a good profession then. Uh, and, I, and I think the, the, um, the, the, the minors were a very litigious lot at the time. There's lots of lawsuits among miners and smelting operations. And so I think Luther's father probably thought that it would be great to have a lawyer in the family to help out with the family business. And so Luther begins to study, study the law, but he doesn't go very far into it. He only lasts a few months. Uh, and and he, he changes course dramatically. And in, of course, famously, uh, decides to become a monk instead. There's this, this famous scene of, uh, he recalls about being caught in a thunderstorm. He apparently had gone home to visit his parents. Maybe he was telling them what he was thinking about changing course. And he was caught in a thunderstorm and it just about struck by lightning. And uh, in, in the midst of all this, uh, cried out to Saint Anne. It was a very fashionable, there was a very fashionable a veneration of Saint Anne at the time. And he he said, if you save me, I'll become a monk. And he survived, and so he decided to fulfill his promise and, and enter the monastery. This begins a very important chapter in Luther's life. It is a major turning point in his career. So he joins the, the Augustinian monastery in Erfurt, abandoning his, his, his uh, career in the law. His father was very upset about this. He had a lot of, there was a lot at stake in all of that. But Luther goes into the monastery, and we—I think we might ask the question: Why would he do something like that? Why would why would a person enter the monastery in a, in a time like his? I, I think it's we, honestly we don't know very much about Luther's decision. He doesn't tell us much about it. We do know a couple of things, though. Well, first of all, we know that that Luther was very concerned about his own salvation. He was greatly concerned. He, he wanted to be certain that he would be saved. And he was uncertain about that uh, when he entered. And of course, the, the the church at the time was was basically promising that if you want a safe way to go, if you want to be sure of your salvation, entering the monastery, or if you're a woman entering the convent, this is a safe way to go. You take certain vows. There are monastic monastic rules that you follow. Follow the rules. Keep your vows. That's that's the right path towards salvation. That's the certain way. Along the way, I think we should recognize, and I think that this was something that was important for Luther as well, that what the monastery offered was the promise of a close relationship with God. 
And I think that could be very attractive to people at the time. They they could they could spend their their days in in prayer and, and meditation on the scriptures. Uh, another, it um, it was something that was very attractive to Luther at the time. And the Augustinian order, of course, was was known for bring, being fairly rigorous. They were they took the monastic life very seriously. They were very disciplined. They, uh, but they also uh, uh, they also encouraged academic work as well. They were a, a learned. You, you could take classes in the monastery, and you could continue to learn theology. And that was also attractive to Luther. He he did had an had an academic background, and, and so he was able to do all those kinds of uh, things in his life as well. So in in fifteen fifteen twelve, uh, he was uh, he was ordained a priest. I'm sorry, not in 1512, but in 1507 he was ordained a priest. In 1512, then he really embarked upon his academic career as a as a teacher, and he was he was drafted into teaching uh, initially by his superior in the Augustinian order, a man by the name of Johann von Staupitz, who was the chief Augustinian in the in the German lands, and uh, he encouraged Luther to to study the scriptures. To continue his work at the university, so Luther had gone on to to study theology at a high level at the university, and finally, then in 1512, uh, Luther began to to teach at the University of Wittenberg, and he taught biblical theology. He was theology. Um, by the way, you might find it interesting that he uh, he was granted he was an awarded uh, a doctor's degree in 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 scripture and in theology. But uh, the, according to the custom at the time, the uh, the person receiving the degree, in other words, in this case, Luther, the person receiving the degree was obliged to pay for the ceremony in which the degree was conferred, and also for it was supposed to pay for a banquet to follow that ceremony. Well, of course, Luther was a monk; he had taken a vow of poverty; he didn't have any money, and so he, he wasn't quite sure what to do. And so finally, the the uh, Luther supervisor Staupitz asked the the Elector Frederick the Wise. He's the Elector of Saxony, the Prince. He said, "Would you would you pay for this, uh, Frederick? Because we don't have any money." And and Frederick refused. No, <laughs> not going to pay for it. You 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 pay for it. Well, they they did. This went on and on and on and on. Finally, uh, Frederick the Wise agreed to pay for the the ceremony and the banquet so that Luther could receive his degree, and then start teaching at the university. But, but Frederick said, I'll, I'll, I'll do this on one condition, that, that Martin Luther remain a professor of theology at the University of Wittenberg for the rest of his life. I kind of thought that was coming. <laughs> yeah, there was going to be a condition there that, that you know, he's got to come and teach in my university then if I'm going to pay for it. The Augustinian order... Let's talk a little bit about the Augustinian order. It's named after Augustine of Hippo, um, the church father from, what, the 4th century, I believe. Yes. Um, yes. So an, ap an academic order. I, I, wanted, I wanted to ask you, you know, who are Luther's influences academically? And I would assume that Augustine then would be one of those main influences. Yes, certainly that's true. Um, the, uh, the the order was was named after Augustine in part because the the, the belief was that they, they were following the original rule of Augustine. Now there's been some debate among historians about what, whether or not Augustine actually wrote a rule. He may not have, but it was nevertheless attributed to Augustine. You know, as you as you point out, Augustine was from the fourth fifth century. He 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 lived in a religious community in Hippo for a while, so he was kind of living kind of a monastic life. And uh, but of course Augustine himself was was one of the most important theologians in the early church. He's, he's wrote just about everything that was going on at the time. Has very important works on things like sin and grace uh, and and other very important doctrines. So there was a tradition among the Augustinian monks uh, for learning, uh, certainly learning the works of Augustine, but then also going on and and studying the scriptures. And, and the writings of other theologians at the time. So that was something that was encouraged uh, in, the, in the monastery in, in Erfurt, where Luther was. Uh, Luther had been a professor of Bible at the University of Wittenberg, so they had that kind of tradition. And the, the impetus, I think, in, 
at, at the time that Luther is coming along is really to study the scriptures. So, so Luther is, is going to be doing that. He's starting to learn Greek, starting to learn a little bit of Hebrew. He's not, he's not where he'll be yet, but he's working on all of that. But, but other influences would be some, some medieval theologians. And there are a number of them that, that influence Luther, especially the, especially the biblical comment, commentators. Uh, we think of people like Nicholas of Lyra, who was a medieval theologian who emphasized the, um, uh, the, the emphasis on the, the literal sense of the text of Scripture. What do the words on the page say? What is the grammar? And, and what do they say in the context of, of the broader work in which this is recorded? We might... We might take a similar approach today when we read the scriptures, even in a Bible study. That was something that Nicholas of Lyra was was emphasizing over against a lot of uh, allegorical interpretations of scripture, where we're looking for a figure or a metaphor or, or some kind of symbol in the text. Uh, Lyra was interested in in the literal sense of the text, and Luther will pick up on that as well and kind of run with it. But uh, of course, Luther is also interested in in um, He's trained as a monk. Of course, he's in the monastery. He's trained to read the scriptures and a monk. So he's trained to kind of think about the personal application of God's word to his own life. But at, also when he's studying at the university, he's trained to think in terms of the scriptural teaching as, as doctrine, as theology. What is, the, what is the teaching and how do we organize that? So Luther kind of has those two different emphases coming along as he's studying theology. And it, it has a, a long-term impact on him because he very quickly, especially as he's reading the scriptures, both, both Old Testament and New Testament, he'll, he will become very interested in, in the literal sense of the text, but also what the text has to say about Christ. And one of the things that he had emphasized, and this came also from Johann von Staupitz, was, was an emphasis on Christ and Christ's work on our behalf. This is an Augustinian influence. I mean, Augustine would emphasize the work of Christ, but it was something also that was being fostered in in the, the monastery. And uh, Luther will pick up on this as well. And of course, you can't help but read the scriptures and find Christ everywhere, especially in the in the New Testament. So Luther really uh, embarks on uh, in, in this direction and and does a lot of of work in the scriptures. Uh, early on, when he gets to Wittenberg and starts teaching there, he'll lecture on, on Genesis. He lectures on the Psalms. Uh, but he also lectures on New Testament books as well. He lectures early on in the book of Romans, Galatians, Hebrews, again on, on the book of Psalms. Psalms were very, very important to Luther. Uh, you know, he, as a monk, as an Augustinian monk, they would pray the Psalms, uh, probably went through the entire Psalter every week and and Luther probably had the psalms memorized in latin uh, and could recite them and it's just and that that kind of grasp is is really important for us to think about because you have someone that's that deeply steeped in the scriptures especially the psalms and you can kind of understand how they're a, he's developing a biblical theology there it's also one that's heavily influenced by the old testament Luther really was, as a, as a biblical scholar more than anything else, he was an Old Testament exegete, an Old Testament Bible scholar. And that really has an impact on him. Uh, and he, he views, uh, he never lets go of the Old Testament and always kind of has that in mind as he's, he's reading the New Testament as well, as he's reading, reading the Gospels. When, so, uh, yeah, uh, well, we're bringing up, into the uh, early 1500s now, and uh, in the as we're coming up, and I'm, the, the plan is to this this episode would be right around Halloween, October 31st, which in certain circles like ours as Lutherans is Reformation Day. What's going on in uh, in Germany, but also in the church at the time in those those days and months leading up to October thirty first, fifteen seventeen. Yeah, this is very important in the in the in the years and in, in months coming up before Luther posts the ninety five theses in in October of fifteen seventeen. There are a lot of things going on in in the church at the time. I mean, if you look back farther, you can you can see. 
that for a, a long period in the in the Roman Catholic Church there has been there have been currents of reform or a desire for reform, a call for reform in the Roman Church that go back a, a very long ways, deep back into the Middle Ages. Individuals, uh, groups calling for reform, and and they there are different ways that that they call for reform, different ideas about how best to reform the, the Roman Church. For example. Uh, some will call for a personal renewal, uh, where they're calling upon the, the lives of individual Christians uh, to return to a, a life of prayer and meditation on God's Word, a, a life perhaps of, of meditation on the life of Christ, or even imitating Christ and his life as a way to reform themselves. We can think of of passages like Romans 12, too, where Paul talks about the renewal of our minds and so forth, and do not be conformed to the things of this world in the, in the late middle, middle Ages. So some are calling for that on the individual, on the individual level for, for Christians to reform their lives, but there's also a, a very strong movement to reform the clergy of the church. Many church leaders are looking around, they see the problems, there are, 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 there's corruption, there's a concern for for money. Uh, there's uh, the church is involved in all kinds of, of wars and intrigues and things like that. There's a concern for wealth among people, and there's plenty of corruption and abuses. Some of the leaders in the church look at the situation and say that we need to reform the church, and the clergy needs to do it. If if the bishops, if if the cardinals in in the church, if they can start working towards reform, that will kind of move on down to the rest of the church. And the church will reform in this way. This is a very significant movement. It will go on, you know, well into the into the 16th century. There's also one aspect of reform is to call for a council of the church. Uh, if we can get everybody together, all the bishops, get everybody together in one big room, then we can hash out all of these problems. Most of those early voices are for reform before Luther's time, are calling for. Uh, for the, the the end of corruption, let's deal with some of the the moral problems in the church, especially among the clergy. But they're also looking at administrative reform. How can we how can we fix the structure of the church so that we can prevent these kinds of problems? Now, these are are valid concerns, and they're they're uh, they're things that would recognize as problems. They do need to be to be addressed. But I think what we see by the time we get to Martin Luther, already he's kind of moving beyond those kinds of concern and looking at, at, uh, at, at, at the church's religious life and the religious life of individual people, both what is it that they believe and then how do they live. And I, I think the issue of indulgences and Luther's 95 Theses is a good kind of pivot point just to talk about this. It, it kind of illustrates this whole problem very well. Um, and, of course, as, as, as many people remember, there is a, there's, there's the selling of indulgences is something that's been going on for a long time. The Roman Church is selling indulgences. Now, an indulgence is, is, is uh, it, on the one hand, it's kind of an easy thing to understand. It can be a little bit more complicated. I'll try to keep it simple. But an indulgence is basically the, the temporal remission of a sin that's been forgiven. Uh, and the tem it's the temporal penalty that's been removed. So the way this would work in the Roman Catholic sacrament of penance. Uh, penance would involve uh, a, a contrition, a heartfelt sorrow for sin, confession of that sin before a priest, and then satisfaction. This would come after the absolution. The satisfaction would be dealing with the temporal penalty that was due to a sin. Now, as Lutherans, you might think this is a little bit strange, but have this idea of satisfaction that, that um, a person would do a good work after their sins are forgiven, they would do a good work to kind of make amends to to merit that salvation. So, for example, they might they might go give help to the poor or give some money to the poor, or they might say uh, a certain number of prayers, uh, the Our Father or Hail Marys or something like that. Or if it's for a really big sin, they might go do a pilgrimage and and uh, and do, have some acts of devotion and, and prayer along with all of that. So. The uh, what was happening was that, that over time the church developed a system whereby people could get indulgences to cover those satisfactions, the work of satisfactions that they had to do. Now they still had to, to do the they still had to be sorry for their sins and they had to make confession of their sins, but they could get an indulgence to cover everything else. 
And over time, the church developed a system whereby people could pay money to get these indulgences to cover the satisfaction for their sins. So this is what's really beginning to kind of come to the fore at the beginning of the 16th century. And it kind of came to a head in, there are many of these indulgences being, being sold before Luther's time. But the one in particular that Luther was dealing with was, or, or actually there were really two of them. One was, was Frederick the Wise in, in, in Wittenberg had a, had a, a palace there and he was filled with relics. These are holy relics, bones from the saints, uh, maybe clothing from a saint, a piece of wood from the true cross, maybe a nail from the true cross, a thorn from the crown of thorns. These were all, all things that had been, been um, that the church maintained were, were real. They were genuine articles. They were real relics that were connected to Christ or, or other saints. And, uh, and Frederick the Wise, the elector of Saxony, had a great collection of these things, and he had them in special showcases and, and little holders for, for these icons or for these, these artifacts, these relics. And people could come in on certain times of the year. They could come into his palace and, and walk through and venerate all of these little relics that he had in his, in his rooms. Uh, and, it, and they could pay money to come in and view these things. And at the end of it, they would get an indulgence. This would be an official document that was signed, had their name written on it, the name of the individual who had gone through and venerated all these relics. And the idea would be that, that they could, they would have a, a like a like a receipt almost like a document that attests to the fact that they received an indulgence, and theoretically then this would be recorded by the church, and and uh, then that the satisfaction for their sin would be would be removed. The same kind of thing, of course, was going on with the the, the building of Saint Peter's Basilica in Rome. Okay. That's of course a the uh, the Archbishop of Mainz, Albert, uh, had arranged with the Pope. Uh, he became Archbishop of Mainz, paid a large sum of money, and was able to pay off the, the Pope by selling indulgences in certain areas of Germany. So these were the indulgences that Albert was, was having uh, for sale were plenary indulgences. These were for full indulgences. So it would be that they basically the, the, rem, the temporal remission would be covered for all sins that had ever been committed prior to the time of, of purchase. Or you could buy them for somebody else. Uh, so these these were uh, this is a little bit crass to say it like this, but they were kind of like get out of jail free cards, where you could get one of these things and you could have it and you could know for certain you got a piece of paper that testifies to the fact that your sins are forgiven and the satisfaction is taken care of, and you are in a pure state before God. Luther has a you know has a problem with this for a number of reasons. Um, but I, I think that, that one, one thing that I'll just mention, because I think it's one of the more important ones for Luther, is that he realized he, he knew very well why people would want one of these. Luther himself had gotten indulgences in the past and had kind of hung on to them as securities. But he understood, he had a pastoral concern for the people and understood that what they really wanted when they went out to get one of these things was that they wanted to know that they were given and that they were going to be saved. That's really what they wanted. Now, he will talk about that in the 95 Theses, but, but there are, and there are other concerns that he expresses in there as well about, um, you know, the idea that, that you're not, people aren't doing any good works anymore. They're not living their lives as Christians anymore because they're putting their trust in a, in a piece of paper. Um, so this, this, uh, this concern for indulgences really kind of comes to a head. And so Luther will, will post these, these 95 theses, these are 95 points for a debate. He has them all written up, and, and he, he posts them outside the church door in Wittenberg on the eve of All Saints. All Saints, of course, would be uh, November 1st. And he has these posted, and he really intends them initially as, as points for an, an academic debate. He's inviting an academic debate on the topic of, of the sale of indulgences. Now, we, we know, or at least we believe that no no debate actually took place in Wittenberg. They didn't have a debate over these things. But there was great interest in these, these points that he made. Uh, and very quickly, the uh, students took them down, had them copied, and they sent off, went, went off to the printers and, 
and people would be reading them pretty soon. One one thing I want to point out about the indulgences, and they're actually really very interesting to read. Sometimes they're, it's maybe a little bit difficult to understand them, but some of them are very clear. For example, the very first uh, thesis of the 95 Theses, Luther says that when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ um, called for repentance, remember this is one of the first things that Jesus does, First, his first preaching and teaching ministry in the Gospels, he calls for the for the for repentance, and Luther says when Luther call, or when, when Christ calls for repentance, he calls for the entire life to be one of repentance, and that that kind of sets the stage for these indulgences. It kind of shows you where Luther is going, and and notice that Luther is saying there, first of all, uh, look to Christ. What does Christ say? What does Jesus say about our life? He says it is to be one of repentance. Doesn't say anything about indulgences. Doesn't say anything about you know making works of satisfaction, but simply repentance. And and I think the rest of the ninety-five theses kind of follow in that in that line that that what Christians really should be doing is is repenting, uh, is is uh, uh, in a sense returning from our life of sin and turning towards toward God and faith. But he makes a, an emphasis there in, in following Christ. Is that that's the way? That is our our certainty and our surety in following Him. And by the time you get to the end of the ninety-five theses, the last two, ninety-four and ninety-five, there, it's very clear where Luther will emphasize that 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 this this life of following Christ might be difficult. It might be a hard way. He says it might it might be through temptations, deaths, and hells. It might be a really difficult way to go. But what what is more certain than that than following Christ? Even if it's a difficult way, we follow. Christ. And he says, let's do that instead of, of following a, a false assurance of peace, which I believe he's, he's referring to an indulgence there. What was the immediate reaction to that? Well, it, it's, it's controversy. Uh, he, he, these, these things were, were, people are talking about them right away. Um, in fact, we know Luther, Luther later on said that when he Issued the ninety-five theses that that they were, were were being talked about and discussed all across Germany within two weeks, and for a long time historians thought, well, he was just he was boasting, he was being hyperbolic about about the claim. But we do know now from from printing records all across Germany, the printers kept records of what they were printing, and, and sure enough, within two weeks they were being printed all across Germany. Now it might be kind of interesting to think, well, why would be people so why would people be interested in something like indulgences? I mean, isn't that kind of boring? Why? Why could that? Would that get get attention? I, I think it's because uh, of the way Luther crafts it. He's really making kind of irrefutable arguments in them. You really can't argue much, even if even if Rome might have trouble with what he says. He's, you know, we're dealing with 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 money, and with the Roman Church. And with Rome's fundraising schemes, and with the authority of the Roman Church, he's really kind of poking the bear with this, and it's kind of interesting to watch to see what's what's going to happen. So there's as these things, as these ninety-five theses begin to be discussed more and more, there's more of a response to them. And of course, Luther can't can't really sit still with something like this. Almost immediately, he goes out and writes explanations of the 95 Theses, which he dedicates to Pope Leo, uh, and, uh, and, and, and goes even further in depth about what he means. And those are really interesting because he, he just lays it out there. Um, and, uh, you know, basically he said, you know, why does the Pope need the money? The Pope's richer than Croesus. He's the, richer than the richest man that ever lived. Why does he need, why does he need more money? Um, you know, it, it's really kind of, uh, this this kind of thing that he presents that that really draws a lot of attention from people and and controversy. So we come from um, fifteen seventeen, and I, I kind of want us uh, have have you bring us up to fifteen thirty. So uh, not quite another fifteen years, but this is where. I, from what I understand, Luther kind of gets his feet under him and really starts to move. Uh, and it also uh, ends up being uh, really the beginnings of what is known as the Protestant Reformation, especially in Germany, but all over Western Europe eventually. Uh, 
how, how fast are things moving and, and bring us up to maybe up to 1530. Sure. Yeah, things are moving very quickly during this time for Luther. Um, let me give one little chapter. Uh, he, he gets into some trouble with his own Augustinian order. He issues these 95 theses, and there's a lot of interest in them. And he's called down, in the spring of 1518, he's called down to, to Heidelberg, where there's a great meeting of the Augustinians. And and they they want him to uh, to, to explain himself. What is it, what is he teaching? Even, even they have some concerns about it. Luther goes down and he he presents to the to the his fellow Augustinian monks at Heidelberg, but he doesn't really give them what they want. He goes down and demonstrates that he is actually a good Augustinian monk in the Augustinian tradition, and he lays out his simple teaching of of the gospel and Christ, uh, and and really calls for a reorientation of theology that focuses around the cross of Christ and his work on our behalf. And I think that what, what's kind of interesting about this move is that he he's willing to talk and willing to debate people, but he starts to move very quickly. And this, I think this is an interesting tactic that Luther takes. He's almost always moving on to the next thing, and people are trying to keep up with him. So they, they start to respond to something he said two months ago, but well, meanwhile, he's moved on to something else. And, and he's moving very, very quickly through all of this. One thing that we should we should point out that's 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 probably happening around this same time, and it's very important in Luther's own own career uh, and and work as a theologian is he has what we might call his his evangelical breakthrough. In other words, he has a, a breakthrough in his understanding of the gospel, and in particular, uh, he tells us a little bit about this. He tells us that he's been struggling to understand the, the Book of Romans especially Romans 1 and Romans 3, where Paul is talking about the fact that we are, we are, are justified not by works of the law. And he, he talk, Paul there talks about the righteousness of God that comes by faith. And Luther tells us later on that, that he was struggling with this understanding of the word righteousness. What does that mean? What is, what is righteousness? And, and Luther explains, he says, I was taught to understand this in the sense of, of God's righteousness. In other words, God's righteous standard by which he judges and by which he evaluates us as sinful human beings. And, and Luther you know, believed he, he could never attain that kind of a standard. Is that what God demands, that we be righteous like he is, that we be perfect like he is? And then Luther says that he began to understand and, and is struggling to understand this in, in, in Romans. He began to understand that this righteousness of God comes not by our, our own work or by our own efforts, but it comes by faith, which is a gift of God, a gift of God's grace. It's not something that we earn or merit, but it's all a gift. And when, when he, that's a little uh, a hinge point in his thinking, which then really changes everything that he does. And we're not exactly sure when this came about. It's, it's, I think it's safe to say it's sometime in the late 15-teens. Certainly by the time he goes to Heidelberg, he has this understanding. This really changes everything for him because now he's going to be strongly uh, centered in Christ, has a very strong understanding of, of Christ's behalf. And it's not one that, that, that we have to merit anymore. We don't have to do good works to be saved, but rather we, we, do, we still repent. God calls us to do that. But we know that, that when we do that, that our sins are forgiven in Christ, and uh, that makes all the difference. Uh, Luther said once that, that, um, uh, that human beings are lost in sin, and it is God who justifies, and that makes all the difference. And nothing, everything else pales by comparison in, in our life. The fact that we are lost in sin and God saves us in spite of our own sinfulness that changes everything, and that's certainly something that Luther uh, understands and runs with in his in his own life. And so he he begins to write, and uh, and to preach, and to do more. So there's this flurry of writing in 1519 and 1520, where he's just constantly writing, and there's a great great demand for his writing. The printers are churning out everything that he comes up with. Uh, there are are many examples that we could we could look at from. From this writing, but I do want to mention one one thing that he begins to talk about 
the importance of two kinds of righteousness. He begins to kind of lay out the difference between the, the righteousness that saves us, the righteousness that God gives us in, in through the Holy Spirit, through faith in Christ. There's that kind of righteousness. And then there's the righteousness, first righteousness, and it's the it's the the the, the way of life that we have in our in in our society around us, where we love one another and we serve one another and we care for one another, those are good works that 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 stem from that first kind of righteousness. Uh, we don't try to make those works pleasing to God; He doesn't need those. Uh, but we we love our neighbor in that in that kind of horizontal way because of what God has done for us. Luther will spend a lot of time emphasizing that kind of idea in the. In the early period, he wants people in, in his congregation, for example, to know we still do good works, but we don't rely on them to, to, to save us. They're not, it's not a cooperative thing anymore with God. We do good works and God gives us grace. We do good works and, and God gives us grace. That's, that's not the way it is, um, and at least according to God's word. So Luther's off, and he's running, and uh, of course he, he gets into all kinds of trouble for what he, what he writes. In, in 1520... Uh, Pope Leo uh, in Rome issues the the first bull of excommunication against Martin Luther. This is the one that that threatens Martin Luther if he does not recant, if he doesn't take back what he's been writing and what he's been preaching. And Luther responds by writing all the more, uh, calling for reform, giving the German nobles, for example, uh, concrete suggestions about how reforms can be made and what they should look like. Uh, he doesn't even slow down. He starts question the church's sacramental system um, uh, and, and you know emphasizes the importance of baptism the importance of Lord's Supper and the importance of making confession of our sins but the other sacraments of the Roman Church he says you know we don't have those aren't sacraments they're not giving us grace so he's upsetting those kinds of really important things for the Roman Church it's no wonder then that in early 1521 the Pope sent out a second bull of excommunication that did actually remove Luther from the church. He was he was excommunicated at that point. That then kind of leads us into the next real important turning point in Luther's life, which is his appearance before the Diet of Worms in the spring of 1521. Of course, the Diet of Worms is an imperial diet. This is where the German emperor is and the German princes are there. It's really a secular forum, a political forum. There are representatives of the church there. But... Uh, it's not really a, a, the kind of place where it's not an ecclesiastical uh, scene or anything like that. And it's it's uh, Luther gets to the to the Diet and he's been kind of a hero along the way. There's a lot of interest from the German populace about what he's been doing and what he's saying. They kind of like the fact that Luther seems to be challenging the authority of the Pope and challenging the authority of the of the Emperor that plays well with the common people. But when Luther gets to the Diet, he begins to realize very quickly they're they're not really interested in any kind of hearing. They don't really want to know what he what he has to say about any of this. They want him to take back what he's been what he's been writing. And so, of course, there he he before the the emperor and before the the German princes, he makes this this stand, and uh, and basically says, "I'm not going to take anything back. I'm not going to recant what I've written because I." I can't do that in good conscience. I'm, my conscience is bound to the word of God, he says. And that's where he's going to make his stand. And uh, that's, a, that's a very lonely place to be. And no one's really supporting him at that, at that point. And uh, even some of his friends are concerned that he's, that he's gone too far. He's declared an outlaw at, at that diet. In the aftermath, uh, the emperor issues an edict that declares Martin Luther an outlaw in the German Empire. That basically means that he has no rights as a German citizen. There's no laws to protect him. Uh, and so there's no safe harbor for him, at least theoretically. That's a dangerous place for him to be. And so he, he uh, his prince, Frederick the Wise, who is starting to realize that Luther is useful uh, and maybe has something important to say, uh, Frederick the Wise is willing to take Luther and, and hide him for almost a year in the Wartburg Castle, up high in the mountains in Thuringia. It's a it's a beautiful place, but it's very remote and quiet. And so Luther spends uh, all those months there. He's 
lonely. He, he's just he's sick. He's, he doesn't want to be there. He wants to go back to Wittenberg and continue. But he does. He writes a lot there, and uh, one very important thing that he does is he translates the New Testament from from Greek into German, and he does it very quickly in a period of about eleven weeks. And that will be very important because he will, of course, when he gets back to Wittenberg later on, he he and his uh, colleagues at University of Wittenberg will work on the Old Testament as well. And uh, the, the New Testament is published in German in 1522. The entire Bible will be finished and ready to go in 1534, 1535. They have the German Bible. Uh, that's a, a very important part of Luther's work as a reformer. Probably something that we don't pay enough attention to is as... English-speaking Americans, we don't think much of his Bible in German, but it's, of course, been very, very important for the Lutheran Church throughout its history. Well, after Luther has his time in the, in the Wartburg Castle, he, uh, he comes back. Things have quieted down enough. It's, there's been some trouble back in Wittenberg while he's gone, and he feels the need to, to come back and address some things some more. And so he, he comes back and gets to work and calms everything down. He starts to reform the University of, of, uh, of Wittenberg's curriculum, especially in theology. But he, uh, one of the things that we see already in 1521, 1522, is that the Reformation is spreading at this point. More and more uh, territories and cities are going over to the side of the Reformation. There are, are preachers going out who are preaching the, 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 the Lutheran teaching, if you will, or the gospel message that, that Luther has been teaching. And there's a growing interest in, in this, this message of Luther, and it's spreading very quickly during this time, especially in 1522, 23, 24. Uh, and it's, it's kind of, things are changing very, very quickly. Um, Things are changing in, in, in German society at this time. We have the, the Great Peasants' Revolt in 1523, 1524, which is a terribly violent revolt. Peasants are, are fed up with the German princes and the way that they've been treated and, uh, and act out in violence. And, of course, then the, the, the princes respond with even more, and it's a, a very difficult period. Uh, and it's difficult for Luther, too, because uh, in some respects, Luther is, is blamed for the revolt, as if he encouraged the peasants, and uh, that he gets kind of a black eye out of all of this, and is, is has a hard time of it. Luther also gets married during that time, which is unusual. This is a man who had been a monk; he had taken vows of celibacy, and he marries a former nun, who also had taken vows, and that was controversial for for people, but of course was an important part of Luther's own own life is kind of being consolidated during this time. But it is, it is still difficult for, for Luther. He, he doesn't have a, an, an easy, easy time of it during any of this. Uh, and, and there's still a lot of danger uh, in his life. And uh, he's limited by his travel. He can't really go uh, to many places in the German lands because he's been declared an outlaw and really does not have freedom of, of travel. Um, there are, are so many things that are happening in, in this time. The, the consolidation of the of, of the, the Lutheran churches is a, a key thing that's happening. One thing I might point out is that in 1528, the uh, the Elector of Saxony uh, decides that they, they want to they need to go out and start looking at what's what's happening in the in the churches in Electoral Saxony. Um, what kind of condition are they are they in? What are the what are the the pastors know. Uh, what do the, the lay people know? Uh, we need to go out and see if you know, what's really going on in the churches. And so we have a, a, a visitation of the churches in Electoral Saxony during this time. Luther participates in this, and he's really kind of alarmed at what he finds. A lot of a lot of pastors don't know much about the teachings of the Bible. They don't know the maybe not, don't know the creed. They don't know basics of the Christian faith. And, and the lay people don't know much either. So he that that they really need to do more to educate people, both both pastors, uh, but also for the lay people and including children. So here you really begin to see in the late 1520s a very strong emphasis emerging on, on the role of education. And I think that's something that we could talk more about that uh, as well. But the, the, the 
the, the Reformation's emphasis on education, not simply Christian education, but even broader than that, becomes a very, very important component for the Reformation going forward. And it's something that we maintain in our in our Lutheran tradition to the to the present day. Yeah, so the, the, the catechism is basically what you're hitting right. at there is, is coming around, that's, the small that's, catechism. That's yeah, Luther writes his catechisms, and they're published in 1529, and that's one of the first first steps of, of addressing that, that whole problem, yeah. So uh, we're getting up to, and leading up to this, what's looking like it's going to be the first half of this conversation, into 1530. Um, the Diet of Augsburg, is that being called and then Luther is going to respond with a, a, a specific writing for it? Or does he write this and then um, somebody uh, uh, convinces the emperor to call a diet in the city of Augsburg? Uh, and then what happens in 1530? That really, that takes us up to 1530, which is a very important in, in, in the period of the Reformation. And we, we have another kind of key key moment with this with the Diet of Augsburg meeting in, in the late spring in June of 1530. There's a lot going on in, at, at a German diet. They have these things every few years. These are, are gatherings of the German princes where they're dealing with you know, issues confronting the German Empire. Uh, you know, the question of what Martin Luther or the, his re reforming colleagues is doing is is probably not the, the top item on the agenda for the, for the diet, but it is something that they, that they have to deal with. There, there's a, there are a lot of threats to the German Empire at the time, so there's political concerns. I'm thinking of things like the, 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 the Turkish threat. The Turks had been moving up the Balkans towards Central Europe, and uh, the Habsburgs are, are you know, the, the emperor is a Habsburg, and they are really concerned about staving off that threat. So they need to get all the German princes uh, on the same page and all supportive. If they, if they start to break off and, and not help, then the empire itself could be, could be threatened. So that, that problem is a, is a key one for the German empire during much of the 1520s and in, into the 1530s too. But at the same time, the, uh, the the t German territories that that have gone over to the side of the Reformation are are trying to keep together. They're trying to build up some solidarity in in of a block. Uh, they are concerned about about pol politics. I mean, we have to be realistic about this. That you know, for many of the German princes at the time, anything that's bad for the Roman Church, anything that's bad for the emperor, is probably good for us. That's kind of the way they think about this. So these guys don't. They don't really uh, mess around very much. So they are trying to kind of consolidate their forces. And efforts had been made to, to do this going back a number of years, where they're trying to build some consensus and unity among those princes that have gone over to the side of the Reformation so that they wouldn't be, be picked off. Their, their future is still up in the air. Uh, there the, many of these German territories have really, and, and the princes are, they have become convinced of, of the truth of the gospel message. They they want to stay with the Reformation. They don't want to give it up. They're they're true believers in in the cause, if you will. And so they they begin to to determine that the only way that they can survive is to is to is to stick together and and try to develop a common consensus amongst themselves about what they believe, teach, and confess. But they want to do it in a way. That that won't cause trouble, that won't cause division, that will 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 be well accepted among the rest of the German princes and even by the emperor himself. And so there is a an effort being made by uh, by the German princes to to address this question of how can we build some consensus and how can we respectfully tell the empire this is our our position and here's why we hold to this. And so there are, are a number of efforts uh, made to try to, to draft up a document that they could present at the Diet that would be a, a statement of, of their doctrinal position, basically a, a confession of faith. This is what we believe, teach, and confess. And now there are a couple of different efforts to do this, but ultimately the, the task will be assigned to Philip Melanchthon, who is a professor at the University of Wittenberg, a uh, colleague of Martin Luther, a very, very gifted linguist, and he's a Greek scholar. 
and a very important theologian uh, in the early Lutheran period. And he he is really tasked to of overseeing the the drafting of a of a of a statement of, of a confession, if you will. By the way, I should point out that he's not the only one that's doing this. There will be other people uh, across the German lands who are drafting up their own statements of confession. So, for example, Ulrich Zwingli, who was a reformer down in Switzerland in Zurich, um, he, he has not been able to find unity with the Lutherans on many points. He will draft his own confession of faith for Zurich. Uh, there are a number of German cities in the south who also will draft up their own confession of faith. All of those will be presented at the, at the empire, uh, at the Diet. Uh, the Augsburg Confession ultimately will not be the only one. But Melanchthon dra drafts a document which is which uh, is called Augustana because it was be issued uh, presented at the the Diet at, at Augustana, which is the Latin name for for Augsburg, where the Diet was being held. And uh, so Melanchthon drafts this document, which is a a really simple and beautiful statement of confession of faith. It, it is initially intended to be a, an, an ecumenical document. In other words, it's a, a statement of common confession. So this is what we believe with, with the, the Roman Church. We, we believe the same things together about God, about Christ, uh, about even justification, about uh, faith and things like this. Um, at, at the same time, he will, he will note that there are some differences as well. Those are recognized. But there's a strong emphasis in the Augsburg Confession about what we hold in common with the Roman, with the Roman Church, he's he, they're trying to, to tell the the emperor this is this is what we believe in common, but yeah, this is our understanding of these of these important doctrines. This is what we believe, teach, and confess about them. So Melanchthon writes this this up, and ultimately at the at the Diet of Augsburg, it will be presented by by the the German princes, especially the Lutheran princes. They're the ones that present this. And if you think about this, this is really something that's kind of amazing. It's not the theologians were behind the drafting of the thing, but it was ultimately the politicians that called for this document in the first place, and they're the ones that present it. And I think that's something really important for us to think about, that these are, these are not pastors or theologians or bishops or anything like that that are presenting this, but, but it's lay people who, who know what they believe who stand up for what they what they believe and and present this before the church and before the the empire and before the world, and in doing so they took a, a tremendous personal risk. Uh, these these guys are going down to that diet, and they they very easily could have been put in prison. They could have been pris imprisoned for what for what they were doing. They were in a sense going against the 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 empire and its official position on things. The church could have found them, um, you know, guilty of false teaching because of what they presented. Uh, it's a it's a very dire moment for them. I should point out that Martin Luther was not in attendance at this at this Diet of Augsburg in 1530. He couldn't couldn't go that far because he was still an outlaw. He had no legal. It'd be too risky for him to go. He could be arrested if he had gone down there. But he's with a group of. Of, uh, of these guys coming down from Wittenberg and from Saxony, and they, they go to Coburg, which is north of Augsburg. This is still in friendly territory. Luther, Luther would stay there at, at Coburg. It's a huge fortress. He would stay there during, during the Diet of Augsburg. And as they're traveling down, the, the, the princes are there. This is before they come down to Augsburg, and, and Luther preaches a sermon to them at, at, uh, uh, at Coburg. And, and basically tells him, you guys, you princes, you're going to go down to this diet. We don't know how this is going to go. You are, are carrying Christ down there. And, um, and that's, a, that's a hard way to go. Um, the, the only comfort that you have, or he, he basically says the, the reason that, you, that we have suffering in this world is because we bear the cross of Christ. But he says the only comfort that we have in this world is with the cross of Christ and God's word. Um, because you hold to God's word, you'll suffer, he says. Because you hold the word of God, it's the only comfort and hope that you have. So he sends them off with that message, basically saying, hang on to the gospel, hang on to God's word. Find your, your hope and your confidence in Christ. Come what may. Uh, go by faith. That's kind of the emphasis. This is really a, kind of a dramatic moment. 
and uh, and of course a critically important moment in the in the history of the Lutheran Reformation this presentation of the confession at Augsburg that kind of is where the Lutheran Church per se gets its beginning June 25th 1530 with the presentation of the Augsburg confession That's where we're going to leave things for now on today's episode of the podcast, Reflection from St. Matthew Lutheran Church. I'm Ed Blonsky. Thank you to Dr. Gerhard Bode, uh, who was in pastor's office for part one. Stay tuned for part two coming up. In the meantime, if you'd like to know more about St. Matthew Lutheran Church and where to reach us, you can go to our website at www stmats.net. That's S-T-M-A-T-T-S dot net. You can find out how to get in touch with us. If you are in the Chicagoland area, uh, you are invited to participate in worship with us and other events that we have coming up in this season of the year. Lots of things happening around the church, uh, both worship services, Bible studies, as well as special events for the holiday season that's coming up. As I said, this was part one of a two-part episode. I hope that you will join us for part two as I continue the conversation with Dr. Gerhard Bode on Martin Luther yesterday and today. Thanks for joining me today. As always, we hope that you will share this, uh, this podcast wherever you get your podcast from and also rate us. We'd love to have a glowing review and a five-star rating. That helps us to reach more and more people with the Reflection Podcast. And you can go to our podcast home uh, and find other episodes of the podcast. We just wrapped up Season 1. Season 2 will be coming up very shortly uh, at the beginning of year 2024. So stay tuned for that as well. Thanks for joining me today. I pray that God will richly bless you. Join me again next time for the podcast Reflection.